All right, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. A few Bible that begins on page 1005. Verse 9, verses 1 through 14. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, thank you for the word. As we come this morning to this passage, and as we are reminded of the blood of Jesus, we are reminded of what He's done for us. God, may our hearts be awakened. May we receive the truth of the word. May we live by the truth of the word and be changed by it. God, work in us by your spirit, pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you may see. I had an experience growing up that is probably different than a lot of you. Some of you can maybe relate to this. Um, I think there's probably a generational difference potentially and maybe a geographical uh, difference with this, but that experience is the experience of growing up in a small town and going to the local post office. Okay. I grew up in a tiny little town of 800 people, Argyle, Wisconsin, uh, down south of Madison. And uh, 800 people, probably about 300 households in 
town and you would go into the post office. It was this tiny little room on uh, one wall where all the mailboxes, probably about eight to ten feet wide, and then there was another shorter little wall that was maybe four to six feet wide, and up in the kind of upper right corner, that's where our mailbox was. And I had this ritual of going in after school. I would uh, ride the bus from the grade school up to the high school, which was closer to where I lived. And I would, so it was like a bright kitty corner across from the school, and I would go into the post office and check if there was any mail. And once in a while, I'd go into the little room where Alice Stan was always faithfully working every single day, right? And uh, say hi to her. And, and some of you can't even imagine this, but this is the days before there was such a thing as email. Um, and so if you had a pen pal, like I had a pen pal who was in the first Gulf War, I got to like get a pen and actual paper and, and write a letter uh, to him and go and send it. And I don't know how long it took to get there and how long it took to get back, but it was a long time. Uh, it was probably, the whole process was probably weeks. And um, that is very much different than it is today, right? It's, it's not something that we really do anymore very much. Uh, the post office just it doesn't have the same significance for most of us in our technological age. It's definitely not what it used to be. Uh, not to say that it's not still a useful place, right? We still there's still certain things that you have to do uh, from the post office, uh, but it's it's not as as useful and effective as it used to be. Today we can accomplish the tasks much easier because the process has changed dramatically. And as we think about this kind of idea of this place and this process, that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. The first half of our passage in verses 1 through 10 is our author's reminder to the audience about the place and the process of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Like today's post office, that system had some serious limitations. And there are some things that it could not achieve for those who used it. Now, the second half of our passage in verses 11 to 14 explains what God has accomplished through Christ that the Old Testament sacrificial system could not accomplish. And we'll examine what the limitations of that Old Testament sacrificial system was as we come to them in our text. Now, we've been for several weeks now examining the superiority of Jesus' priesthood compared to that of the Old Testament. Since chapter 4, we've looked at that, especially in chapter 7, when we saw the contrast between Levi and the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, and then in Melchizedek, and a shadowy figure from Genesis chapter 18. So we've been looking at some of these things, but chapter 9 is really going to bring us face-to-face -face with the heart of this issue, and it's going to challenge us to see where our trust and our reliance fully lies. So let's look today together now at this section, this first section here in verses 1 through 10. If you're taking notes, we're going to see the first thing, that we must turn away from reliance upon the earthly place and process. We must turn away from reliance upon the earthly place and process. Our first verse here introduces these two ideas. It says, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So regulations for worship is the process. Earthly place of holiness, obviously, is the place, right? Um, and then he's going to handle that in reverse order. So first, he's going to talk about the place, and second, the process. So first, let's look at the place that is described here 
verses 1 through 5. This is a description of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Mostly, we see this in Exodus chapters 25 through 27, where it describes the construction of the tabernacle and the furnishing of the tabernacle. Some of these details are also seen kind of smattered throughout the, the rest of the Pentateuch, but primarily we see these things in Exodus 25 to 27. If you have a copy of the ESV study Bible, I would encourage you to look at this section. Uh, in, the, in Exodus 25 to 27, there are very detailed pictures of the tabernacle. There are detailed pictures and explanations. There's like two or three full pages that show all of these different items and what they were used for. So it's kind of get an idea of, of what this all looked like. That's a really helpful, some helpful imagery there. But what he describes here, he describes these two different places and then the items that were in these two places. The first, he talks about, he talks about the tent overall, which is the whole, the whole tabernacle. But he, he goes and he talks about the first section, which is called the holy place. That's where the lampstand was and the table and the bread of presence you see in verse 2 there. Then he says behind the curtain, which was, there was a second section, which is called the most holy place, or the whole, literally this holy of holies. This had the golden altar of incense, which actually the golden altar of incense was actually in the holy place, but because that incense, it was right in front of that curtain of the holy of holies. So in a sense, it belongs to the holy of holies because the incense would go from there into the Holy of Holies, so the actual physical location was in the Holy Place, not the most holy place. Um, clearly, that author knows that, right? It's, it's a kind of confusing the way it reads, but um, so the, the only actual physical thing that was in the, the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which is described here in verse 4, describes the things that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Verse 5, the cherubim and the glory will be shattered the mercy seat. And as interesting as all of this is, again, you can go read all about it. You can read it in Exodus 25. Maybe you have the ESV study Bible. You can read it in great detail about those things. But as interesting as all of this is, our author really doesn't want to spill any more meat trying to describe these things or their significance. As he says in verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, clearly, he could have gone into great detail, right? He could have explained what the purpose of all these things were, um, what, again, kind of what this layout even looked like. He could talk about the dimensions of the, of the different rooms. But that's not what he is focused on here, and neither should we be, right? But this isn't this rabbit trail that we should get lost in here as we're reading through Hebrews chapter 9. Because these external elements, these are not the real problem that he's trying to get at. Next, he turns from the place to looking at the process, where this is where we're going to see the problem introduced. So what is described here are the duties of the priests in the tabernacle. You see in verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly, or that word can be translated repeatedly or continually, the priests go regularly into the first section, which is the holy place. They perform their ritual duties, which would have been tending to the lampstand, burning the incense. Those are things that had to happen on a daily basis. So there is this regularity, right? this repetitiveness to this. And then the bread of the presence, which we saw 
in verse 2. That was 12 loaves of bread that were placed on the table that had to be replaced every week. So they would make 12 new fresh loaves, and then the priest would eat the remaining loaves the previous week during that week. So there is this regularity, this continuity of the process that had to happen. Then in verse 7, the day of atonement is described, where he says, into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now the day of atonement is described in great detail in Leviticus chapter 16. So if you want to go back and, and read about that, you can do that. Um, but what he's emphasizing here, notice the language here in verse 7. The high priest only, right, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and he goes not without blood. So there's this imagery here of, of this. Uh, this is not a, this is a, a regular, meaning once a year, right? It happens regularly uh, once a year. But this is, this is distinguished from what all the priests do on a daily basis to say that this is this one-time thing that only the high priest does. And this was a two-step process where he would go into the outer court, first of all, and he would kill a bull, and that the blood of that bull would be brought into the Holy of Holies, and it would be, it would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, and that would be the sacrifice of the high priest because he himself was a sinner, and he had to make that sacrifice for himself and his own, his own sins and the sins of his family. And he would go back out and kill the goat, and that blood would be brought back in, and that would be for the sins of the people. And then there was a second goat where the, the sins of the people would kind of be symbolically placed on the head of that goat, and the sins would be sent out into the, or the goat would be sent out into the wilderness, symbolizing that God was sending the sins of his people away from him, away from his presence. Philip Hughes, in his commentary, explains the significance of this process in this way. He says, all of this served to make dramatically plain to the Israelites that the way into the presence of God was closed to them because of their sinfulness, which separated from them from their creator, and that it was only through the blood of a sacrifice offered in their stead that they could hope to find mercy and forgiveness. So this was a very clear picture, this once-a-year offering that only one person could make in this one place. It was a constant reminder, a clear reminder to them of their separation from God because of their sins. So both the construction of the tabernacle, how this was laid out, and this process by which atonement was made, again, it made it clear that there was a big-time problem of, a, of what their sin led to in that separation. God. Before he highlights the problem with this process in verses 9 to 10, there's this interesting comment in verse 8 and the first half of verse 9. By this, he says, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic, or that the word that's used there is the word for parable. It's parabolic, right, for this present age. I think he's saying here that the problem is self-evident. That as long as this old system was in effect, which is what it means here, that it's still standing, as long as, as this old covenant system, this sacrificial system, was still in effect, 
then the problem still remains. It's interesting here that the Holy he says the Holy Spirit indicates this. It's, it's clear that these things were pointing forward to a greater reality. Well, so what is the problem? We've been talking about this problem. What is the problem? He tells us here in verses 9 and 10. Second half of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various functions, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So you see the problem here? It's not an external problem, but it is an internal problem. They had all of the things that they needed for outward cleansing. But all of these gifts and sacrifices, they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, our sin problem isn't just something that we can cover up with a band-aid. While sin can certainly be something that is done externally, that's not where it originates. So if we're going to seek to attempt to understand the deceitfulness of sin and how easily our hearts can go astray, we must understand how not to deal with our sin. We must begin to see and to believe that the gospel really is good news in the face of all of our attempts to cover up our problem with an external solution. Jesus very much got at the heart of this issue when he was confronted by the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees come to him and they say, why are your disciples eating without washing their hands? And the word that they use there is that they're eating with defiled hands. And this is the word that actually you see down in verse uh, 13, the sprinkling of defiled persons. So there's, there's this idea of being ceremonially, 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 unclean, right? Not doing things according to how they were prescribed in the Old Testament law. And the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, your disciples, they need to wash their hands before they eat food, right? This is part of this process to be clean before God. A concern with the external. Listen to how Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity for the crowds and for his disciples. And let us today also take these words to heart as well, because these things apply to us. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people and his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, 13 things, right? It's a huge list. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. 
These are things for which we might have a guilty conscience. This list could be way longer than it is, right? Let me read it again. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. You know and I know that there is nothing that we can do externally to cleanse our hearts from these sins. You can't just slap a band-aid on it and say, oh, but these things are just going to go away, right? If I just do the right thing. We don't have to look or listen very hard to see how the world around us promises a bunch of flimsy and empty solutions to our sin problem. Of course, the world doesn't want to call these things sin and evil, right? The world wants to glorify these things. And then, oh, when something crazy happens that is one of these things, we, we want to, like, excuse it for some weird reason, right? It's like you can't have it both ways. You can't glorify sex and all this craziness all over the place. And then when, like, some sexual predator does something, it's like, oh, wow, how does this happen? I mean, come on, we can't have it both ways. And our world wants to just say, well, it's just everything's, everything's okay until, like, somebody does something wrong, right? All of this become a better you type of nonsense. It's all about external remedies that cannot perfect our consciences. That is the problem here. Imperfect, or as we'll see below, impure consciences. Now we need to take some time here to consider this idea of conscience. What is it and how does it work? A couple helpful definitions. The first one is pretty short. If you take notes, you can write this one down. That one's a little long, but this one, Simon Kissenmacher in his commentary says, man's conscience is the barometer of his moral sensitivity to deeds performed. Man's conscience is the barometer of his moral sensitivity to deeds performed. When I was a kid, I had an older cousin who uh, was in a lot of trouble all the time. He spent a lot of time getting out of jail. And he also, I don't know if he ever went to jail for this, but he stole uh, money, he stole cattle, he stole guns uh, from relatives, from his own uncles, from his own grandparents. And I remember as a little kid uh, hearing my relatives talk about him and say, so this guy, right, this, this cousin, he doesn't have a conscience, right? How, like, how can you do these things? There is no barometer of moral sensitivity to deeds performed when you're stealing money and you're stealing things from your own relatives. Philip Hughes has a helpful definition as well. This one I got to get the book out because I wasn't going to type the whole thing out. Hughes says the conscience is properly man's inner knowledge of himself, especially in the sense of his answerability for his motives and actions in view of the fact that he, as a creature made in the image of God, stands before and must give an account of himself to his creator. 
Right? So there's this idea that we must answer to God for our motives and our actions. And there's this reality that we will stand before him, right? We will stand before him and answer to God. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 2.15, when he's describing how the Gentiles who did not live under the Old Testament law of Israel, how they still knew right from wrong. Paul says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So even though they didn't actually live under the physical law, they didn't have God's law as the people, they show that God's law was written on their hearts because their own consciences bear witness to them, right? Everyone knows right from wrong. But deep down, we all know that there is a right and a wrong, and that is, that is the work of God writing his law on our hearts in our consciences. Now, obviously, like, as the example of my cousin, right? like, some people don't live as if they know that difference. But clearly, deep down, there is this nagging that we all have are conflicting thoughts accusing or excusing us, and that is talking about our consciences. So your conscience is what makes you lie awake at It's that inner knowledge of yourself, as he says, especially in the sense of your answerability for your motives and your actions for which you will stand before and give an account of yourself to your creator. So your motives, that's the internal thing, right? That's, what, that's what's coming out of your heart. Your actions, those are, those are the external things. You could go through a whole day, maybe like hardly sitting externally, right? But you're still going to lay your head on your pillow at night, and there's going to be a nagging for maybe the reason why you did the right, you could have done the right action with the wrong motives, right? With simple motives. And Hughes goes on then to describe the problem of an imperfect conscience. He says, as a sinner, who has failed to keep the loving standard of God's law, he has an inner consciousness of his guilt and of his need for cleansing and restoration. The Levitical ceremonial was incompetent to provide that perfection of reconciliation, that completeness of justification before God, which the sinner so radically needed. The prescriptions of the Mosaic system were external rather than internal in character involving, as they did, regulations regarding food and drink and various washings, which you see here in verses 9 and 10, which by reason of their externality are appropriately described as regulations for the body. This is fundamentally not good news, right? It is not good news for us that these external things, well, it is good news, Right, that external things don't work. But the fact that we're we're in, we have this problem, this is not good news, right? It's not good news that we're trying to fix ourselves with these external things. For the original audience here, it was clear that their temptation to rely on this external system was opposed to the gospel of Christ, which they had come to believe. And for us today, though the temptation is not reliance upon animal sacrifices for a clean conscience, we must still acknowledge that the external solutions of this world, or of our own making, the things we try to do, they will not help us draw near to God with a clean conscience and with confidence as we seek to worship Him. 
Now, we are in the season of Lent right now in the church calendar, and I don't want to dog on Lent in general. Uh, I think it is helpful at times in our lives to have a focused season of repentance, of simplicity, of self-denial. We certainly don't want to say that those are, are bad things. But for many who observe Lent, many of us kind of probably grew up in this tradition, it's not really about dealing with issues of sin and conscience, right? It's not about dealing with your heart. Rather, it's this external focus about pumping the brakes and not doing certain external things in order to put a few extra notches in your belt and say, maybe God will accept me. Maybe I can take a couple steps closer to God because I'm doing some external thing. I'm, I'm abstaining from something, right? Which, again, it's not bad to abstain from certain things. Fasting from certain things is a great thing. We would say we should always be doing that. But we must fundamentally reject all notions of trying to get right with God by our own efforts, by doing some type of external deeds. So what's the answer? Obviously, our author is not going to bring us to the edge of this cliff, right? And just leave us hanging there without giving us the answer. We've seen here in our first part that we must turn away from reliance on the earthly place and process. The solution that is found in the second part. We must turn to Christ and rely fully upon his heavenly and eternal work. We must turn to Christ and rely fully upon his heavenly and eternal work. Verses 11 and 14. I love how verse 11 starts. If I was going to translate this into English, I would change the word order a little bit because the first two words in the Greek are Christ and then the conjunction but. Okay? Same thing we see in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, talking about how we were dead in sins, we were children of wrath, and then it says, but God. Right? It's the same two words of God, here is Christ. But it literally is God, but, right? So, but God. Here it's but Christ. The when really goes with when he appears, which comes after that. Okay? So the, the words here, these, these two words, these flashing neon lights that we see in this passage, is but Christ. Okay? And this problem that's so clearly explained in verses 1 through 10 that we're like, now what? Right? What do we do now? He doesn't waste any time. But Christ, okay? We're going to get the solution. But Christ, when he appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not in this creation. Really, this whole section here of when he appeared to the end of, of verse 11 is kind of parenthetical because the, the focus is that Jesus entered, okay? But Christ, he entered. He entered into, he entered once for all into the holy places. He is the great high priest who has entered into heaven itself once and for all on our behalf. When it says here, the greater and more perfect tent that is speaking of heaven, he entered into the heavenly place, the heavenly holy of holies. It's very consistent here with the theme of all of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. 
he entered into the greater and more perfect tent. This emphasis on perfection has been seen over and over. Saw verse 9 that our consciences could not be perfected. But Christ, right? He is the greater and more perfect high priest. And look at how he entered into the holy of holies, heavenly places on our behalf. In verse 12, we see here another explicit contrast. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by, right, not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by the means of, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. As James said, we're going to be focusing, focusing a lot on the blood of Jesus over these next few weeks. We'll see in chapter 9 here. And scripture is very clear on this, that the blood of a perfect human was needed to secure the eternal redemption of humans. The blood of animals would never suffice for our eternal redemption. A perfect man had to die for fallen man. This is what the whole Old Testament anticipates. That's what the whole Old Testament points us forward to. Our author then continues here, and he rounds off his argument in verses 13 and 14 with this lesser to greater argument. So it goes like this. If A, which is verse 13, how much more B, which is verse 14, okay? So if A is true, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, this external thing, if that is true, and it was, right, that those things did work, right, temporarily, there was, there was an outward cleansing, an outward sanctification of the flesh that the people experienced, okay, if that is true, how much more be, verse 14, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is good news, folks. Verses 13 and 14 are really the, the apex of this argument. This Jesus who said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life Right? So you see that here in verse 14, that he offered himself. The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down with my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. The perfect Sinless, spotless, stainless Lamb of God was both priest and sacrifice. The Old Testament high priest, he could have gone into the Holy of Holies and dropped dead, right? But he wasn't ever going to sacrifice himself for the people. He was always going in to sacrifice an animal. And even if he did go in on some suicide mission, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to kill myself for, for, so God will forgive the people. God would have said, no, you can't do that, right? Because you're not perfect. You can't be this perfect sacrifice that is needed for the people. So not only do we get our eternal redemption secured, which is really good news, 
for eternity, but we also get a pure conscience here and now in this life. Does this mean that we're not going to sin anymore? No, obviously, right? Does this mean that we're going to lay in bed at night and never feel guilty for the things that we've said or done or thought during the day? No, we still will. But it means that despite our continued sin, despite our constant need for repentance and renewal, that through the blood of Christ we can confidently draw near to God and not wonder if a sufficient price has been paid. It has been. The blood of Jesus has paid for our sins. And we are cleansed, says Calvin, not so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt, but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. It's not like taking your car to the car wash in Wisconsin in January and February and March, knowing that you're just going to drive a few miles and it's going to be all brown and gray and gross again, right? We have our consciences purified so that we might serve and glorify God. Notice the language at the end of verse 14. We are purified, our conscience are purified from dead works to serve the living God. Dead works, which is all verses 1 to 10 in the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? These things I couldn't say. Those things, our consciences are purified from those things, from dead works to serve the living God. This is something worth living for. And this was something that it was worth Christ dying for. We need to turn to the front of your worship guide. It's a good summary, I think, of what we've been seeing here. Dennis Johnson and his work on Hebrews. It says, the self-offering of Christ bestows on believers benefits beyond our capacity to fathom. His blood silences the charges of our own accusing, shame-shrouded conscience. Think about that for a minute. Jesus' blood silences the charges of our own accusing, shame-shrouded consciences. The only place you can go, right? When, you're, when those things are nagging at you, the blood of Christ silences those charges. And he defeats and disarms Satan, who can no longer prosecute or enslave us by the fear of death. Yet Christ's death does more than meet our need for eternal redemption through cleansing, forgiveness, and liberation. Yet it's not just this thing that we have to look forward to when we die, right? The goal of the redemption we secured is to bring us into God's presence as priests consecrated to serve the living God. What more fitting response could there be than for those who are receiving an unshakable kingdom to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe? I want to go back to my opening illustration about the post office. There are parallels, obviously, to the Old Testament sacrificial system and its insufficiency. But the answer to the problem of the post office is not next day Amazon deliveries. 
It's not a future day when you punch in the coordinates and the drone goes and picks up the package and drops it off on your front steps within maybe minutes or hours, right? It's not FaceTiming someone instantly who's on the other side of the world and being able to have that conversation and not having to you know, write a letter and wait days and weeks. No matter how sophisticated our technology is, these are all only just external changes, right? Now, certainly the analogy breaks down a little bit here because the post office isn't pretending to fix an internal problem with an external solution. But I hope you get the point. We need an internal solution, not an external solution. And this table this morning is a picture of what the Old Testament sacrificial system couldn't accomplish. The bodies of, of bulls and goats and their blood could not secure our eternal redemption. It could not cleanse our consciences. Jesus' body and blood has and will continue to. We're going to ask a couple questions when we sing our last song here in a few minutes. Those questions are, what can wash away my sin? And what can make me whole again? The answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? Probably familiar with the song. If you can confidently answer those questions, what can wash away my sin and what can make me whole again? If you can confidently answer those with nothing but the blood of Jesus, then this table is for you. This doesn't mean that you're You've achieved perfection. It doesn't even mean that your conscience today is completely purified and clean. It doesn't mean that you didn't fight with your spouse on the way to church or that you didn't have some words with someone recently that are still nagging at you, right? And you need to deal with. But it means that you know that the solution to those problems isn't you trying harder, right? It's not going and buying some flowers and chocolate and saying, oh, this will this will fix it, right? It's not throwing money at it, it's not doing anything else. It's saying, I'm a sinner, right? And you're a sinner, and you don't need Jesus. God help us, right? Coming to this table is that reminder that we need Jesus. We need the body of Jesus broken for us. We need the blood of Jesus shed for us. So if you can confidently say nothing else can fix the problems in my life, nothing else can purify my conscience, nothing else can fix my marriage or my, my parenting, only the blood of Jesus can change those things and can make me right with God. If you can say that confidently today, then this table is for you. If you are not yet a Christian, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, we would ask that you coming to the table. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to trust Jesus, what it means to have a relationship with him. So let's take a moment now. I want us to take some time before the Lord silently. I'll ask those who are serving to come forward. Take a moment uh, to, to go before the Lord, to ask God to, to seek, to search your heart and to purify your conscience. And those who can come forward,
uh, who, where a servant could come forward and then I would invite us to come down in a moment.